Book of Revelation, chapter 1, is where we are. Revelation, chapter 1. We're in the middle, of, towards the end of chapter 1 there. It's, it's describing Jesus Christ to us. and It's the only physical description of Jesus given in the Bible, other than Isaiah. Isaiah does give us one that tells us that his visage, or his body, was marred more than any other man. We get that glimpse, you know, when he was here and he was crucified, that they had abused him that great. Uh, but this is telling us, and describing us to Jesus. And remember that verse 1 tells us that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this book is about that. It is about describing Jesus to us, to us as he is. Uh, we tend to think of him as he was when he was here on the earth as, as the humble servant. When he's coming back, he's victorious Lord. He is King of kings, Lord of lords. You know, he, he is over all. And the setting, as, as John turns around, he hears, a, he hears a voice like a trumpet and he turns around. That's a verse, uh, I think, 10 or so. And he sees Jesus and he's in the midst of seven candlesticks, and we saw that the candlesticks are the churches, and we don't have to speculate about that. Jesus tells us that in verse 20, that these candlesticks are the churches, and so Jesus is in the midst of the church, and then it describes what he's wearing. It tells us this, that he has a long garment on, and that represents you know, his status, that, you know, that he's a priestly, he's kind of a priestly garment, and that he has this long one on, that he can move deliberately and slowly, he's not in a rush, he's not a fast guy going around and about. Uh, he has a golden girdle or a sash that's around him. The priest wore that, and theirs was normally woven with a little bit of gold in it. His is all gold, showing again his power, his authority that he has. Uh, his hair is white like wool and white as snow. That shows his purity and also shows his age, you know, that he's the ancient of days, that he is there in this way. And so I, I don't normally picture him that way, but here he is with this white, white hair. Has eyes of flaming fire, eyes of judgment, piercing eyes as he looks, that he can look through and see and discerns what's going on, and he is not fooled by any of the outward show that we put on. Uh, his feet are like brass, brass, uh, burnished brass, and that's where I get brass from. <laughs> but burnished brass is there. That's uh, brass was an implement of judgment where they could have the fire, and that was there. And so again, along with his eyes, his feet are judgment. He's coming to stomp out sin. He's coming to to tread down those that are under him. You know, we have images all the way back. Uh, to the garden about him stomping on the serpent's head. That is this. He has this judgment feet. He's going to come down and stomp it all. He's going to judge it. And then he has a voice like many waters, uh, like a waterfall, like Niagara, like uh, ocean crashing on rocks. It's no longer the still, small voice. It is a voice that roars when he comes down. I am Lord, and you will listen to me. It is that transition that we are having in the book of Revelation when it's no longer... Uh, the suggestions that comes down when he comes down to rule with a rod of iron, as we are told in Psalms and uh, other places in uh, uh, Daniel as well, that he's coming with this this voice that is heard, and there's no longer any question. He is coming as a judge. He's no longer the suffering servant. He is coming to come down and to rule over this earth. And we have the book of Revelation is that progression as things are being prepared and being made ready for him to come down and judge the world and to establish his kingdom. And so that's what. You know, it's telling us, even the description of Jesus Christ, about that. And that's what the rest of the book is going to be about. He is coming with all power, with all authority, with his omnipotence, I mean, his all-powerfulness. He is coming with full strength when he returns. So we are ready. That's just a brief review for verse 16. So Revelation 1, verse 16 says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in his strength. All right, so we're just going to park on the one here for a minute. There's a lot in here. Uh, there's a lot of imagery going on, and that's where a lot of people have troubles with the book of Revelation. They're like, oh, I just don't understand it. It's puzzles and clues and riddles. and Kind of, kind of not. And it's also speaking clearly. It's speaking in a way that holds up to time. It's speaking in a way that uh, 
uh, can transfer from back then to talk about things today. It's talking in things that we already know. You know, if we've read the word and he's assuming that we have, if we are his, and this is a letter to us, that you have read his word and that you're going to understand some of the things that he is saying. It's, it's a love language. Uh, it's talking in that way. You know, our family, we have love names for each other. You know, it's like Megan, sometimes we call her Missy Coyote. Uh, it's, uh, it doesn't mean anything to anybody else, but it's one that we have because we listened to a story about Hank the Cowdog, and there's a girl in it, Missy Coyote, and we always kind of called her that. You know, so we all know what that means, and we know what the reference is, and now you do too. Uh, but it's all there, but we, we have it, and we, we throw it out in that way. You know, it's something that we have as a family that is there together. So this is family language. If we're in his family, and we've read his word, and we know who he is, this makes sense to us as, as we go at it. And we can see that in this very verse. And again, as I said in, um, earlier in chapter 1, this is like a primer. Uh, this is teaching us what we are about to see, teaching us about what we're about to learn. It is, it is the instruction code. It is the key or the legend on a map that is teaching us how to now interpret the material that is in front of us. That's what this is. This is little samples, little tests. I've gotten a a bunch of these games here lately, Elaine and I like playing them. They're an, an escape-type game, uh, kind of like our bus. You know, so they're little ones that we can do as a couple together, and you have an app that plays. And uh, Before you play that, because it's a little different, you, know, you have these cards, you're not in a physical room, you know, taking the back off a radio to get the batteries to put in to work on something else, but you kind of are using these cards. And so there's a little tutorial that comes with it that gives you a sample of how to use every kind of card in that way, so then you can go and have the adventure you know, playing the game. That's what this is. Chapter 1 is a lot of that little sample. Here's a little taste of what you're going to see so we'll know how to interpret those things later in the book. And so here, um, again, he's taken for granted that we know his word. And so he's given us some of the main things to work with. And so let's look at that in verse 16. I'm going to read it again, and you see what it is that you already know. So verse 16 says, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shining in its strength. Okay. The first one I go through there and I read, I'm like, that I clearly know, that I've seen and I've had reference before in God's Word is the sword, right? Everybody kind of recognize that, the sharp two-edged sword. I know that one, and then there's there's a reference. Let's look at uh, Hebrews 4. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 12. says, that is not it. That is Hebrews 12, verse 4. Well, I'm dyslexic. Hebrews 4, verse 12. It says, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. The word of God, right? This is the sword. It is the sword that comes out. It's powerful. It's the two-edged sword that he's making reference to here. So when I read that in the, in the book of Revelation, I know what he's talking about. Out of his mouth, I don't picture a sword coming out of his mouth, although I did collect a bunch of images of... Uh, uh, an artist trying to illustrate this picture, and a lot of them having with a sword coming out of his mouth, or a sword in his teeth, you know, a knife in his teeth like a pirate or something. And like, that might be a way to visually put it in that way, but it's really he's talking about the word that is coming out, and is referencing this passage where he's talking about, oh, it's the two-edged sword, it's cutting. It cuts through where you don't know and you don't understand. The power of God's word when you just quote it. When we are witnessing to someone and you're talking to someone, we use the word, we preach it. You might not have to say, well, you know, in Matthew 4, verse 17, you know, but just quoting the word and letting it work, you know, that the Holy Spirit uses that. It goes in, my mind, again, I have a fantastic imagination, so it's like, it's a heat-seeking missile. 
I just have to then launch them, you know, launch out God's word and then let him go through the dividing the asunder. He knows how to use it. He knows how it's going to affect people in a different way. And so just read his word, quote his word, and we say it and God uses it. Uh, another reference is in Ephesians 6 when it's talking about the full armor of God. You know, we're supposed to put it on. It talks about the helmet and the breastplate and all those defense things that we have. You know, the shoes prod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the belt of truth. We have all that. But the one weapon we have is the sword, right, which is the word of God. And so uh, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so we understand the reference when we see it here in Revelation 1 that he has this sharp two-edged sword. Most times, those two references that I looked at in Ephesians and Hebrews 4 represent the Roman short sword. Uh, I meant to bring one. I've got one in my office. I play with it all the time. All the kids play with it. You know, when we're in there, it's not sharp. It's a dull two-edged sword uh, because kids and I play with it. But uh, it is there. It's a little short sword, and it's what made the Roman army as fierce as it was. They trained with it. It was for close quarters. You know, they could hide behind their shield, do damage with it. You know, they were mobile. You know, they were able to be real agile with it in this way. That's what the normal use of the Word of God is, the sword that you and I have. And it's for one-on-one battles. It's when I'm talking to someone one-on-one and I'm using the scriptures and I'm talking to them. Or even up here and now, you know, talking and presenting God's word. It's, it's that close and personal work in that way, that we're using God's word. And so it's smaller. It's used in there, say, more one-on-one. The one that is referenced in Revelation 1 here is a heavy sword. It gives us the exact one. It's kind of more like javelin in size is the way they describe it. But it's a heavy sword. I would think more like... Uh, we tend to think like Conan's, you know, broadsword. You know, it's like this big sword that you can bring down, sharp on two edges. It is heavy. It's going to do damage. It is going to cut no matter which way he moves. It is him bringing judgment. In the Old Testament, I use the term uh, rod of iron. It's that, a rod of iron that's sharpened on two sides. It is Jesus bringing his word, and it is hitting with heavy force. And so uh, no matter where it swings, it's cutting. It is doing its job. And so here's what we need to glean from that. No matter what the public opinion is, no matter what man's law says, no matter what uh, politically correct things would say of today, well, you can't say that. That's not politically correct. No matter what the college teachers have instructed you to say or not to say or to think or not to think, no matter what the experts say, no matter what you know, the tractors think or, you know, or the, uh, the doubters want to say or no matter what the doctors might tell you or no matter what anybody else has to say, God's word is the one that matters. God's word is the bottom line. God's word is the way in which he's going to judge by, not by the world and its changing ways. Uh, and they always want to downplay God's word. It is ancient. It is outdated. It no longer fits us today. No, it's as relevant as everything. It addresses everything that we have going on in our world today. And God is telling us what is good what is right, what is for our best interest, what is safer, what is better for our culture, what is better for our country, what is better for our community. It equips and addresses all that if we would just believe it. And it's the standard that he is going to use when he comes back and he judges. So his standard better be your standard. His way better be your way. It is the line and it is the example. It is the law that he is going to judge us by. It's going to be by his law, not like, well, what did your culture say? You know, uh, the Germans tried to hide behind that. Well, well, they said it was legal. I was just following orders, you know, so I killed Jews, you know, and I was just doing what they told me to do. And then the court, you know, uh, the world court held them accountable. We're like, no, it was your obligation to say that is wrong. We don't do that. We have that obligation. We're a part of the Lord's army. We're to stand for what he stands for. We're to stand for his word. We're to stand for his standard. And in a world where that is going to probably get rougher and rougher, doesn't mean we back down. No, if you want to shine bright, if you want to be bold, 
if you want to be useful in the master's kingdom, if you want to be a lighthouse that is a city on a hill, you stand up what is right, what is his word, and what is he declares unto us. I listened to Jonathan Kahn yesterday, just a short little segment. Jonathan Kahn is a Jewish uh, rabbi who is a Messianic Jew who trusts in Jesus Christ. And he was challenging us, and he says, as the day gets darker and darker, you and I are to be Elijah's. You know, we sing that, and it's a favorite song, you right? These are the days of Elijah. You know, we want to sing it, and it's good, and it has a lot of drive to it. But these are the days of Elijah. I mean, you and I are to be the Elijah, right? We're the one who stands up against the prophets of Baal. We're the one that stands up against them no matter what their threats are, no matter what they are saying, no matter how many, many of them there are, that there are us, and we need to be the one who stands up. Now, Elijah wasn't alone. It looked like he was alone, right? Because he's facing all these prophets of Baal. God says, I have 7,000. I don't know their names. I know the one who stood up. I know the one who spoke out. I know the one who stood for the Lord on that day and said what he was supposed to say and stood for what was there. Let's not be the 7,000 that are the unnamed ones hidden away someplace. Let's be the Elijah who's on the front line, the one who opens our mouth and says something. That's what he's calling us for as we see the last days. These are the days of Elijah. You are to be the Elijah. You are to be the Esther. You are to be the Gideon. We are to be the one who has the boldness to stand up and say something for Christ's sake. Because the world needs it. It's the only hope they have. It's the only answer they have. That's one of the great things we see about RU. You know what RU is? It's a gospel program. We teach the gospel. And we show the transforming work of Jesus Christ, that it is powerful. And it can save you in your addiction. And it works. We watched it work. We'll see it work. Because Jesus Christ is that transforming. And this is what they're coming to, looking for answers. The young man who got saved says, I've tried the others. He goes, no, no sooner than we get done with our 12 steps, we go outside and we're like, where are we going to go score? You know, they did their court obligation. Where are we going to go do it? It's different here. It's different for that. So we get to be the Elijah. We get to stand up. And so that's what we see when we see the two-edged sword. There's point one. <laughs> uh, what else do I see? I read verse 16 again. It says, and he had in his right hand even seven stars, and out of his mouth went that sharp two-edged sword. I understand that. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. I understand that one too. That Jesus would shine bright. I almost said the song. There's a song out now. You know, I know enough of it that shine bright like a diamond. That's all I think I know about it. I don't know if it's a good song or a bad song, but that's all they say that I understand. But you know, he shines bright. He shines like the sun. Uh, he is there. I've seen that before. John has seen that before. If you remember, we, he did it on a mountain. What was the name of the mountain? Mount of Transfiguration, right? Because Jesus was transfigured. They were up on this mountain. And uh, here's my teaser. Come on Wednesday. We're going to talk about this a little bit more because it was during a certain feast that we were studying on Wednesday, the book of Nehemiah. But he was there, and he was transformed to the point where you know, he was shining bright. You know, and he saw him, so he got that little glimpse of that. And he had to figure, now he's, he sees him in this full glory. It really impacted John because when John starts out his gospel, in the gospel of John, chapter 1, all he talks about is Jesus being the light, right? Jesus is the light. He is the light unto men. Uh, he is the witness. You know, we are to be a witness for that light. Uh, Jesus is the true light. He is the light of the world. John came to talk about the light. He was not that light, but he came to expose the light to us. You know, so he goes through talking about Jesus Christ, the light. He is the light. And he's shown like looking at the sun at noon in its strength. That's what it means when it's at high noon and it's out looking at it. How long can you look at the sun? And not go blind. <laughs> not very long. <laughs> little secret. Whenever I have to sneeze, I'm real close to a sneeze. If I can get a glimpse of the sun, it usually makes me sneeze. I'm like, thank you, son. Yeah, I don't know. It works for me. I might try it sometime. <laughs> but, but don't look too long. Yeah, but, but it was there. It's like um, I had uh, mom and dad that bought me a telescope when I was young, and it came with a sun filter. I don't know why. 
but uh, you know, don't look at the sun. Here's a filter to looking at the sun. You know what I did? I looked at the sun. Uh, even with this thick black filter on there, uh, you could see the sun and you could see some of the little flares coming off. And I lost it or dad threw it away. I don't know whichever it was. But, but I lost that filter after a while. But, you know, to use a telescope, you had to use the spotting scope to find it. Oh, that was like nothing like a magnifying glass of the sun beaming you in the eye. You know, so it's like that. It, it, it was hot, you know. And there's a few times I've looked at the sun because they told me not to. I'm a rebel. You know, and so you guys kind of look at it and then you blink away and you see the sun for the rest of the day in your eye. It is bright. The sun is hot. And at noonday when it's there and it is intense, we don't look at it. You know, it's something, the early thing you tell your kids. I remember our kids looking up, blinking their eyes. We're like, don't look at that. You know, I know it's pretty, it's neat, but you know, wait till it's on the horizon and it's down and you can see your, uh, sometimes I really like it in the morning as I head east, you know, that's coming up. It's a really thick cloud. I just look at it and I marvel how round it is. You know, how, how, how you can see it through the clouds. It's so white and it's so round. And sometimes it's down low, you see how big and just appreciate it in that way. But Jesus Christ is this bright, intense light. It's intense and it's pure. And the only thing you can compare it to is like the, the noonday sun. And then this light exposes you. It shows you. It reveals who you are. You're laid bare in front of it. It's that kind of light that can look through and you will see. I like light. I play with light. Bright flashlights and other things. In there. There's some bright flashlights we have we can stick on our hand and you can see your bones through it. You know, Jesus is that kind of bright light that is shining. You stick up your nose, you look like Rudolph, you know, but yeah, don't borrow my flashlight. I've had it up my nose. <laughs> but, you know, but we're playing with these bright lights in, in this way and sticking our mouth and our ears and everything, just you know, making it glow is there. But Jesus' bright light shines through. He sees everything in us. It's more of a metaphor here. But yeah, he can look through and he can see. There's no hiding anything from him. You're exposed. You're now in the presence of bright light. There's nothing that you're hiding. There's nothing that he can't see. So he is there. So then that brings us to the last thing. So I understand the two-edged sword. I've seen that elsewhere in Scripture, and that's what Revelation is going to do. It's going to use some imagery. It's not going to say much about it, but it's one of those things where you're like, oh, I've read that before in the Bible, and it's to drive us back there, and it gives us a fuller understanding of what he's talking about in the book of Revelation. So he's teaching us that. Jesus' countenance being shining, that he's being revealed in front of us. It drives us back to that. And that encounter was at the Mount of Transfiguration where we saw that he was better than the law, that he was better than the prophets, that Jesus Christ is the light. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Worship you him. You know, that he, he hides the others away. And so it shows us that, that Jesus is the one that we worship. Jesus is the one that we are to adore. He is far above and better than anything else. Don't put anything else on the same par with him. Jesus Christ is a far above and beyond. I could even take it back to Moses when he was spent that little time with the Lord that he would come away shining, you know, that uh, is that kind of effect it's supposed to have on us that when we're with him, that we're to shine like him. So I understand those two references and they drive me back to the Bible and makes me think of those things and gives me a fuller picture than just the text that is here. And uh, I had a picture all saved out I was going to show you, you know, kind of using the example of a picture is worth a thousand years, but I guess the Lord didn't want me to, so I didn't. So, but uh, I showed it to Elaine. She goes, that's stupid. So I didn't. <laughs> so she spared you all. Uh, but, um, and so I was thinking, but it's true. A picture is worth a thousand words. You know, I can take a lot of time to describe something. And that's what this is. It's word pictures. He is telling us, the two-edged sword, go read and get the fuller understanding. Shining bright, go read that and understand fuller what I'm talking about. And, and so we do that. But then he throws in one that we, I don't understand. Verse 16, he had in his right hand seven stars. Huh. So I try applying that. I think back, I'm like, star, stars in the Bible. Bethlehem star, right? The Christmas star, I think about that one. Does he hold that in his hand? These are seven of them. There was only one. That doesn't really fly. I think of Revelation 1, you know, that um, 
He makes the stars up there. I can think of Job when he talks about, you know, the Pleiades and Orion's belt, and there's a few other places where stars are mentioned. None of it is not real coherent. You know, it's not real consistent of what's going on. I don't get a real clear picture. And uh, just to plug the podcast again, the last one we did was called Look Up, which was talking about things and events that happen in the sky. So you can go look at that and, and get a little more detail there. But it's, it's not real clear. You know, as uh, Jesus is holding these, is it showing me that Jesus is so big that he can have other suns in his hand? You know, he's this massive. He is, but there's other verses that clearly say that, you know, that he can measure the universe in the span of his hand type thing. So I don't think that's it. But I don't have to wonder too much. So Revelation kind of teaches me this. If it's one that you don't know and you don't understand and it seems confusing, I'll tell you. And that's what he does. Verse 20 tells us. So verse 20 says, And the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in the right hand. So he's going to tell us. Here's, I'm going to tell you about the mystery. Uh, and also the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So that's how we learned what the lampstands were, or the candlesticks. They were the church. And now we learn that these seven stars that he has in his hands are angels. So that's interesting. I always like it when we talk about angels. It's kind of neat to think about that other realm, you know, that other dimension of what things are going on. So we know that there are seven churches, and we've looked at them. So there's now seven stars. So it says there are seven, in the right hand are seven stars. And so, and then it tells us that those seven stars are seven angels. And the seven stars are seven angels. And there's, uh, that are over the churches. Angels of the seven churches. So the angels and the candlesticks go together. That there's seven different churches and there's seven angels over these seven churches. And we know the churches' names from verse 11. There are uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we talked about that, you know, that they're representative of all churches. He's picked out seven. You know, it's omitted, you know, some that we clearly knew were in existence at that time. So this is a representative bunch. Seven's the number of completeness. And so we have the complete church here represented in these candlesticks, and we have seven representatives of them in Christ's hand. So that's what we know. And then preachers divide on this point. <laughs> so, so who are they? Uh, is, it, is it angels? Or is it what angels means? Because if you look at the Greek word for angel, it means messenger. Is it messenger? That's one of the views. Is this talking about the messengers that he has in his church that Christ has them in his hand, the messengers, the ones who are caring for the church, uh, the people that are praying for them, the ones he has up teaching the word to them, encouraging them, helping them with their talents, you know, the ones that are there supporting them, the ones that are basically the under-shepherd for the shepherd, the ones who is tending his flock in this little area. You know, he's, he's talking about me. He's talking about pastors. This is that, that kind of a messenger, the one who stands up and is the pastor over the church. Is this what he's, this, is this what he's talking about? I think, maybe, we see that some of these pastors that he talks about in the next few chapters, we're going to look at the the seven letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. Some of these get good report cards. Hey, well done, you know, that you've done this. Some of them get bad report cards. I am not pleased with you. Some of them get mixed review. You do this right, and I have a little trouble with that. The cool thing is, the good ones and the bad ones, they're all still in his hand. That takes some comfort. And I think it's pretty wild that Jesus has that connection, that he sees them as precious enough that he keeps them in his right hand, that he holds them. And as he's ministering to the church, he has a close relationship for them who minister to the church. That's a pretty neat imagery that we have going on there, and it's, uh, I think it's awesome if this is the case. I also think it's terrifying if this is the case, 
that he is holding me that time of accountable. You are representing me. You are to be caring for my people like I would care for my people. Are you doing what that? You know, that's a lot that weighs down on me as I think of that and I think of this interpretation. I do like what J. Vernon McGee said. I like J. Vernon McGee. He says things in a witty way. He says things in a simple way that helps me to understand. Uh, the way he says that is, I put the cookies on the lower shelf where the kitties can get them. I can understand that. You know, that's, that's where I like my cookies, down where I can get them. And J. Vernon McGee says about this, he goes, I like to think that this does refer to the local pastor. It's good to hear the pastor called Angel. He's been called everything else. Yeah, <laughs> that's a pretty good, J. Vernon. But there is another view. So the alternative view is that these are supernatural beings. These are angels that, that are down here that are responsible for the church. And I think that's pretty cool that we have an angel of Cornerstone Church, that we have an angel who is here, that he watches us, that he's, on, he's, in, he's accountable for us, that he is here and involved with what we are doing. That's pretty cool. We're never to pray to angels. We're not to talk to angels. You can talk to angel, but you can't. <laughs> you know, but we're, not, you know, we're, we're not to talk to these supernatural beings in that way, but we're to know they're there. Matthew 8, chapter 10, talks about little children having guardian angels. They stand in front of God and give account for them and watch over and protect them. I like that. I like thinking about the church having a guardian angel. I think that's pretty neat. It's nice to know that we have someone who's fighting on our side, on the spiritual side. That we see this world and we see the struggles that we have. We understand the conflicts and the battles that are there and all the physical things that we have to face. We see and know and understand that. Where we usually kind of mess up and kind of get a little blindsided is that I don't understand always the spiritual realm that is going on, the spiritual forces that are pulling at us, and that there's something pulling at us against that way too. And yet, it's nice to know that we have someone on the spiritual realm who's accountable, like I'm accountable, uh, on that side, watching out, doing battle for us, standing guard for us, you know, to keep this a place that is separated and sanctified unto Him. I like that. As I think about that, I think, I hope we're not getting Him in trouble. You know, if he's kind of like, hey, what's going on at Cornerstone? You know, when he has to go give a report, I hope it's not that. Uh, I hope we're not a burden to him. Well, i got to go back down there with those people. You know, I, hope, I hope it's not that, too. I hope he's not rolling his eyes at me right now. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> you know I, hope, I hope he likes us. I hope he understands, you know, our desire is to please. Our desire is to try to be obedient. Our desire is to try to serve him, you know, to forgive us for when we're spiritually blind and dumb and stubborn. I hope that he has something good to say about us when he goes back to the angel water cooler. Hey, let me tell you what my guys did this week. You know, he has something about that. would be neat to think about as they have those conversations. You know, there's something about that when I know someone else is accountable. You know, I don't want them to do bad. I don't want them to get in trouble. You know, that, that, that kind of helps too. It's like, you know, it's bad enough my rear end's in the fire, let alone if I think about somebody else. You know, so that's something there about accountability that we have. And also knowing that we're not alone, that we'd have that kind of supernatural force, you know, watching out for us. I think it's kind of neat. A lot of commentators like to pick one or the other. They like to say, well, you know, it's clearly a preacher, or, well, it's clearly an angel. I don't know that I fall in either one of those camps. I think I fall in both. I think it's the preacher. I think it's he has an angel. I think that God says, I have my people, and I have my spiritual beings who are responsible for my people. I like that. Still terrifies me. <laughs> Uh, that uh, in that position that I need to be sensitive to him. I need to love you like he loves you. I need to show you like he wants to show you. I need to be there for you like he would be there for you. So I ask for your prayers you know, uh, to, to help me in that endeavor. I try. I also like thinking that we have a supernatural help because I know that's there too. 
I know it's there anyway, and I know that I think some, you know, us have them there. And so it's just neat knowing that we're fighting on all realms, that we're not alone, that we're in Christ's hand. And as he moves among the midst of the church, that we're in his hand, and he's taking care of us. We're close by him as his servant should be. We should have a listening ear. So yeah, I choose both. So Jesus is in the midst of the church. He holds the pastors and the angels in charge in his right hand. We see that. And he inspects us. I think that's what he's doing when we see this picture of him. And he's in his garments and he has his feet of brass and his eyes of fire. That he's in the church and he's moving and he's seeing what we are doing. I, I don't have to wonder about this. I actually know this. Because he writes seven letters to them. And it's seven letters to these seven churches. And they were literal physical churches. We've talked about that. That he writes a letter to them. They get a letter from Jesus Christ. I think it's more than that. That's why I can take this view here. I think it's also representative. As we know that they represent the seven churches. They represent the complete church of the church age. And so there's letters in different timelines. And we'll look at that. You know, Ephesus is the first church. And he talks about them in their first things. Laodicea is the last church. I think that's our church where we are today. And he talks about them. And there's fruits I see of that in our world today with the Laodicean church. And there's the churches in between. And I also think it's individuals that it applies to you and me as an individual. Are you the Ephesus church? Have you lost your first love and just going through the motion? You know, do you need to go back and remember what it was like the day that you were born again? Are you the Laodicean church? Are you Luke cold? Luke cold? Are you lukewarm? <laughs> or are you, or you're neither hot nor cold and, and you're just kind of, you know, don't really care one way or another. That kind of represents our age. You know, and then there's everything in between. There's the Philadelphian church that's on fire and on love and wants to go out and seize the world as an open door to preach the gospel. And there's the other ones that have let the world come in and the world is influencing them more than the word is influencing them. And they have all these different things that we're going to look at through that and it's all applying to all of us in this way. So he's inspecting us. He's in the middle. He's inspecting uh, these stars that he has, you know, the, the angels, the spiritual angels and the physical ones. That What are you doing? Will you convey my message? Are you listening? He's going to write to them directly as well. So he's in the middle and he's seeing how we're doing. And we're going to be like John. And we're going to turn and we're going to stand before him. We're going to see him. And how are we going to react? And I think about John. John knows Jesus. He spent time with him on this earth. He had a position that we've never been in. He walked with him on the roads between town to town. John was there beside him as they went. John had gone out for him you know, and brought others to come. John had talked with him. He knew the sound of his voice. He knew what it was like when he spoke his name. He knew what it was like when he would tell the stories and teach, do the teaching and have the burning within his heart. He had experienced that as he sat at Jesus' feet. He had ate the bread and the fish that Jesus Christ had taken and had made grow so he could feed that 5,000. He had taken up the baskets full and then stood there with the other ones and like, whoa, wait a minute. He'd been there with that. He'd watched Jesus walk on the water and Peter as he went out. And he'd seen all that. He's an eyewitness to these things. Matter of fact, he even makes that claim that he was an eyewitness you know, to the, the transforming of the Mount of Transfiguration that he and Peter and James had seen. He'd also seen him raise the dead. When everyone says, it's too late. She's dead. Or Lord, if you'd only been here, he stinks. It's been four days. Watch Lazarus come hopping out. He'd watch that. He'd seen people as they gasp and, and spoken to Lazarus, whatever it was he had to say about his adventures where he'd been for those four days. What, what, he'd seen all that. He'd stood at the cross with Mary and watched Jesus Christ die. When Jesus puts him in charge of her, behold your son. John, take care of Mary. As he tells him that, 
he'd seen the empty tomb. Saw the cloth that was folded that was there. Had met the resurrected Jesus Christ. Talked with him. Heard the instructions that were given them. Went around and preached and taught. and Did those things that he was supposed to. So he knows Jesus. He's seen Jesus. He knows who he is. But he's, he turns around and he hears this trumpet blast and he looks at Jesus in the midst of the uh, seven candlesticks with the seven stars and his hair and the sash and the feet and the eyes of judgment and the sword and his brightness that comes upon him. How does he respond? Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. And then he gives him instructions. So he knew who he was. He had seen him, and it strikes him as dead. When he sees Jesus Christ in his revealed power, in his revealed state, with his glowing and his judgment, his eyes are fire, terrifies him that he falls down as a dead man. What's it going to be like when I stand in front of him? What's it going to be like when you stand in front of me? It's overwhelming. The cool thing about our Savior is He's the God of all comfort, right? He puts His hand down and He comforts Him. John. I bet He says His name and He knows it. You know, John doesn't even like to think about it. He always usually says the one whom the Lord loves. He's like, I can't believe that He would choose me and let me be part of this. But puts His hand down and comforts Him. And He's laid His right hand upon me. Just that little comfort that He gives. He's the God of all comfort. So what will it be like when we stand before him? When we think of John, he spent time with him. He walked with Jesus Christ for those three and a third years when he was on the earth. He was with him daily. He was given charge of Mary, like we said. He preached and taught to the early church. He was the last one who died. He's the only one who died, only one of the disciples that died of a physical, natural death. And he stands in front of Jesus and he falls like a dead man. How will we stand? Will we be ready? Will we be able to withstand it, I know that we'll be struck. I know that we'll be overwhelmed. But man, are we obedient? What if you're a disobedient servant standing in front of him? What's that like? What if you're lukewarm in front of him? What if you're fearful and you're afraid of what the world's going to say? What's that going to be like to stand in front of him? I know he says things like, if you will testify of me, I will testify of you in front of my Father. Do we testify of him? It's the great commission he's given us, right? Do we do the great commission? Do we share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we sensitive enough to that burden? It should burden us. It should burden us when you have those missed opportunities. That we should be that close that it bothers us. We should meditate on good things that it would bother us, that it would be there. As I did last week, you know, I challenge you to pray for an encounter. I pray for an opportunity to be able to witness, to share. I pray that you did, and I pray that hopefully we stepped up to that, and then we had it. And if we didn't, the good thing is about Jesus Christ is that he's got us second chances. We have this week. We have today. We can begin again. We can start anew. I met a man that was drunk, and I could offer him that. I'm like, yeah, you're drunk. You're in a bad state. You've had a bad day. God can forgive. You can start afresh. You can start anew. I can freely say that because I know that it's true. I can offer that because I know that is a legitimate offer. We have that opportunity. 
Are we fulfilling the Great Commission? Are we reaching out? Are we supporting those who are? Maybe you're like, I, I'm just not courageous, you know, I'm courageous enough. I can't do all these things. I, you support those who are. He gives us options to be able to part of that. Do we profit alongside of that? You know, we have an opportunity to give some gloves. We have an opportunity to help in that way, to pray for our missionaries, to intercede in those ways. We have many ways. We, have prayed, we can pray for those in Haiti, as was just brought up to us. We, we can intercede in, in, those, in those areas as well. But are we ready to stand in front of him? Are we ready to stand before him? And he's shining in his brightness on that day. And he's going to be seeing us as we truly are. And there'll be no false face. There'll be no pretending. There'll be no false front. You'll be laying there exposed in front of him because I doubt we'll be standing. We'll be laying in front of him. and His laws will convict us. But we have an opportunity to change. That's why we have these little judgment seats now. We have a time where we'll come before communion. We'll read through that about... We have a time now to judge ourselves. You know, unless we get that day and we have a lifetime of all these things in front of us, we have a time now to put ourselves in front of Him. One, if you don't know Him as Savior, trust Him today. What are you waiting for? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no man come to the Father but by Him. You must repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ to save you, or you cannot get there. It's not your good works. It's not your good deeds. It's not how much money you gave. It's not things you've done for Him. It's nothing like that. It's not time and service. It's not houses. It's none of that. Do you have Him as your Savior? Does His life cover your life as, as he stood in the gap for you as he taken the punishment for you has he been crucified for you that's what that is it's him dying in your place you repent of your sins and you trust in him the finished work of jesus christ nothing that you have as paul said all the works and the righteous things that i've done i count them as filthy rags i count them as dung it is nothing so living for him is not what we are doing for him you know for salvation it is out of obedience it is out of appreciation and so that's why we want to be obedient servants. We want to be ones that are listening to the master's call, his promptings. We want to hear the still small voice before the river or the waterfall comes and drowns out and says, why didn't you? And so he gives us an opportunity to judge ourselves today. So if you don't know him as Savior, repent and trust in him as Savior today. If you do know him as Savior, what's he saying to you? What are you feeling convicted about today? Has the Lord tugged on any string? Is there anything that you need to work on? Anything you need to do? Anything where you've let him down? Where you're like, Lord, I need to be faithful. I need to be true. I need not let these other things come between me and you. Lord, I've let other priorities, other things replace you. Lord, I, I need your strength. I need your help. Come before him and be honest to get right with him. We have the opportunity to do so this morning.